Every time we gather for worship, I ask God to show up and show off. Because we need God to show up in his might and to show off in his mercy. We need to see the marvelous might of God. We need to experience the massive mercy of our Lord. So God, please show up and show off. That prayer finds its origin in the passage that's before us this morning. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Today we continue our four-part sermon series entitled Elijah, A Story of Faithfulness. We find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 to 40. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Kings chapter 18, let's begin at verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands. You've followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God and do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one even paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones each, one each for the tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seeds of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are... God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that, are, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. It also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story I just read for you continues to showcase God's power and provision in a culture that had turned her back on the Lord. Apparently, under the obnoxious rule of King Ahab, Israel had become a culture that was religiously tolerant. Those convictions that used to be the bedrock of her society now were a distant memory in the ancient past. Elijah realized that King Ahab was a horrible king. The scripture says of King Ahab that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings before him. He married Jezebel. He began to worship Baal. He reinstituted Baal worship into the life of Israel. God raised up the prophet named Elijah to speak a word of judgment against the nation. Elijah gained an audience with King Ahab. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, the God I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. God commanded the no-name prophet Elijah to go to the Kareth Ravine. There, the Lord fed him twice a day meat provided by ravens. He drank from the clear water of the brook. But because there was a drought, a severe famine, that brook dried up. And soon the Lord told Elijah to go to Zarephath, that city of smelting, that place of refining. I realize that it only takes a few moments for us to read the stories recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. But apparently it takes several years for them to live. For in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1, it says that after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, go appear to Ahab. For I'm about to bring rain upon the land. Elijah arranged for the meeting. When the king saw the prophet, he said, here comes that troublemaker. Look at all of the calamity that you brought upon your own countrymen. Look at all of the devastation that we've had to endure because of the drought that you brought about. And Elijah says to his pathetic king, I'm not the troublemaker. 
you are. After all, you have neglected the commands of God. The Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything. You shall not misuse the name of God. So far, king, you're 0 for 3. Three strikes and you're about to be out. It's time today for us to decide who is the real God. I want you to assemble all of the nation to meet me on Mount Carmel. And also, call all of those false prophets that are on the political payroll. You know, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah that eat at Jezebel's table. Because tomorrow, there is going to be a showdown at sundown. And all of a sudden, Ahab left. He called all of those false prophets. He gathered the nation of Israel and they all gathered there on Mount Carmel. There was a curious crowd of Israelites. There were the 850 false prophets. And Elijah, the man of God, was the first one to step up and speak. How long will you waver between two opinions? How long are you going to limp along between two ideas? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But you cannot just waver between these two opinions and claim that both of them are sovereign. Because every deity claims absolute obedience from you. Every deity, whether it's the Lord or whether it's a false deity, every deity, every religious figure will demand ultimate allegiance from you. There cannot be more than one almighty. Merely by the definition, almighty must declare sovereignty. So everything else must be subservient to the sovereign one. So here Elijah is saying, you just got to choose for yourself today. You've got to choose which one is the legitimate sovereign God. If it's the Lord, Yahweh himself, then follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If it's Baal, then follow him with everything that's inside of you. What Elijah said in those days, he could still say to us today. It is time for us to decide who is God. If it's the Lord, then church, follow him in everything that you do. Follow him with reckless abandon. Follow him with absolute obedience. But if money is God, then follow it. Do everything you can to make as much money as possible. If money is God, then follow it. If your children are the gods of the universe, then just continue to pursue all the whimsical desires that they have and pursue them with everything that you got. If they're really the gods and goddesses of the universe, then you keep on following after them. If you are God, then continue to do your own plans and desires. But today, you've got to decide, Elijah says. Today, you've got to choose who is God. If it's the Lord, follow him completely. If it's Baal, if it's some other figment of our imagination, if it's some other creation that we have idolized, then follow it. But do not waver between two opinions. On that day, that crowd responded with noncommittal silence. They didn't know what to say. 
Elijah continued, you know it's me against the world. I am the only prophet left. The horrific first lady, Jezebel, has picked off all of God's prophets one by one. There's not another prophet of the Lord standing. I am the only one left. Oh, but here are 450 prophets of Baal. So let's decide today who is the real God. Let's, let's decide it with some good old-fashioned competition. Let's get two bulls. One for me, one for them. We will both uh, sacrifice that bull, arrange it on the altar, cut it up into pieces, and then we will call on the name of our respected God. Whichever God responds with fire, that's the God who is real. That's the God who is legitimate. And the people in the crowd said, what you say is good. So Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. They prepared their bull. They cut it into pieces. They arranged it on their altar. From morning until noon, they shouted to Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. They were sincere. Oh, Baal, answer us. They were wholehearted. Oh, Baal, answer us. They even danced and gyrated all around the altar. But Baal said nothing. There was no answer. There was absolutely no response. Now, the ones who were most surprised at this were the 450 prophets of Baal. After all, they were sincere. But my friends, you and I realize that individuals can be sincerely wrong. Belief is rooted in reality, not sincerity. Belief is rooted in reality, not sincerity. I can sincerely tell you I can fly. I believe it. I know it. I believe I can fly. And I could go atop this sanctuary. I could ask you to stand on the grassy area outside off, off of Highway 31. And I could declare, I can fly. I believe it from every fiber of my being. I can do it. And if I took a leap of faith, <laughs> I would sink like a shot quail. Because belief is not rooted in sincerity. Belief is rooted in reality. The prophets of Baal were sincere, yet they were sincerely wrong. They kept shouting to Baal, but Baal did not answer. About noontime, Elijah began to taunt them. This is sanctified smack talk. Elijah said, you might need to shout louder. Maybe, maybe Baal is busy. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he has traveled. Maybe he's taken a celestial siesta. Maybe you just need to wake him up because he's taking a nap. Maybe he's gone aside. That phrase that can be translated gone aside uh, can imply maybe he's going to the bathroom. What Elijah is saying is that maybe Baal's on his throne, and I'm not meaning the throne in the palace, but the throne in his bathroom. Maybe he's gone aside. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's preoccupied. Maybe he's gone fishing. Maybe he's just deaf. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's fatigued. Maybe you just need to shout louder. I can't hear you. Maybe you just need to shout louder. And they respond. And all afternoon, they shout as loud as they can. They are as emphatic as they possibly can be. Eventually, 
they began to cut themselves, hoping that the drawing of blood would draw the attention of Baal. But it came time for evening sacrifice, and there was no answer, and there was no response, and Baal did nothing. By this time, many of those 450 prophets of Baal were exhausted. They suffered from heat exhaustion, fatigue. They had been in a worship service all day long. Some of them were suffering from enormous blood loss. Elijah steps up. It's time for the evening sacrifice. And the scripture says that Elijah begins to repair the altar of God, which was in ruins. Why did it need to be repaired? Because it had been neglected. For years, it had been neglected. The people of God had neglected the God of the people. And the altar of God was in shambles. In a similar way, if we abandoned this building for years, if we said we're no longer going to worship, we're no longer going to come into the house of God, it wouldn't take very many years for this structure to be reduced down to rubble. Such is the case in our story. So Elijah has to repair the altar. What does he use? He uses 12 stones. And he takes those 12 stones and he rebuilds the altar. The 12 stones reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. Elijah is not the first person to ever take 12 stones and make an altar. And I think that, that, that as he was repairing the altar, I think people were reminiscing about their God. I think they remember that as he began to assemble the 12 stones, they remember the stories of Joshua. For it was Joshua that once the people of God went across the Jordan River, that it was Joshua who was told, take 12 stones, reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the other side of the Jordan River, before you enter into the promised land, I want you to construct an altar. And there, when your children ask you, what are those stones, mommy and daddy? Why are they there? You tell them the story about our God. You tell them that the ark of God kept the Jordan River and its waters away so the people of God could pass on dry ground. What God did through the prophet Moses to the Red Sea, God does through Joshua in the Jordan River. And God is a God who always provides for his people. And these stones remind us of who our God is. I think that as Elijah is repairing the altar, the people are reminiscing. They're remembering our God. For ours is the God who spoke and the world came into existence. Ours is the God who created the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and the fish of the sea. Ours is the God who taught the sun how to shine until the ocean only comes so far. Ours is the God who preserved Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. It is our God who rescued Isaac from Mount Moriah. It is our God who established and spoke through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is our God who took Joseph from the pit and placed him in the palace. It is our God who raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites. Ours is the God who led the children through the Red Sea. And I think that as Elijah is repairing and rebuilding the altar, the people of God are reminiscing because stories are powerful. Stories of who God is and what he's done in your life is powerful. 
the test of your life have been transformed into your testimony. And you can give testimony to the goodness and the greatness of God. And even though there may be times when you maybe become negligent, it's when you remember the stories of what God has done for you in the past and who he is that you begin to reminisce and worship is ignited inside of you. I think that's exactly what happens on Mount Carmel. I think that the people are reminiscing about how good God is and how glorious he is, how merciful, how mighty he is. Elijah arranges everything. He cuts the bull into pieces. He places it on the altar. Then he tells them, take those four jars full of water and pour it on the sacrifice and the stones. Do it again. They did it a second time. Do it again. They did it a third time. They took 12 large jars of water and they soaked the 12 stones and the sacrifice on top of the altar. There was so much water that it ran down and even filled the trench that had been built around the altar like a moat around a castle. As I read that detail, I have to ask myself, where'd that water come from? It's a drought. There's famine. That's like gold. Where did that come from? And some people have said, well, it, it, it came from the nearby Mediterranean Sea. That Elijah told him to run down the mountain and go to the sea and carry it back up. And surely that could happen. Or could it be that just as God provided for the widow in Zarephath, just enough flour and just enough oil, could it be that God provided just enough water for the prophet? Once again, this is a story about God's provision and God's power. And I submit to you that that in and of itself is a minor yet major miracle of the story that God provides the water in front of the eyes of all the false prophets and all the Israelites. And Elijah says, go and get that water and pour it over here. And everybody goes, what? You got water? We've been looking for that for years. Where did that come from? Once again, remember, this is a showdown against Baal. Baal was believed to be the God who controlled the weather forecast. He's the God that's depicted with a lightning bolt in his hand. He is standing in a cloud, yet he cannot produce any fire. He cannot produce one drop of rain. For three years, no rain droplets have fallen from the sky. For three years, not one drop of dew had been found on the ground. Yet Elijah has 12 large jars full of water because God provides in abundance. Elijah then steps up and he prays, Oh God, answer me. Oh God, answer me. So that these people will know that you are God and that I am your servant. And so they will know that you are turning their hearts back to you. Boom! All of a sudden, fire fell from heaven. It fell with such force. It fell with such power that the, the sacrifice was scorched. The stones were scorched. Even the soil was scorched. And the water was licked up. Even all the water in the trench. Now the people responded in a greater fashion than you did right there. 
I mean, this is an amazing story. I mean, fire fell from heaven and the people fell on their faces to the ground and they declared the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What's the purpose of the test? On that day, they were to decide who is God. If it's the Lord, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. And on this day, they declared the Lord, he is God. Elijah ordered for all the people to gather the 850 false prophets to take them to the Kishon Valley and there to slaughter them by the sword. When I read this story, there are four takeaways that I take from it. The first one is this. You plus God always outnumbers the enemy. You plus God always outnumbers the enemy. In this story, Elijah claims, I am the only prophet left. It's 850 to 1. Those are not good odds. I'm not a betting man, but I would not bet for those odds. 850 to 1? Are you kidding me? And yet in this showdown, Elijah's not outnumbered. He may be outmanned, but he's not outnumbered because you plus God always outnumbers the enemy. So teenager, you may think you're the only one standing up for personal holiness. You're the only one in your class. You're the only one in your group. You're the only one in your sphere of influence. You're the only one standing up for truth. You're the only one standing up for personal holiness. Everybody else is living the way of the world. They are experimenting with drugs. They are dabbling with alcohol. They are consumed by it, in fact. They're doing all the things that the world tells them they ought to do. And you think to yourself, I'm the only one. My friends, you are not alone. Because you plus God always outnumbers the enemy. To the young adult who says, I, I have made it my plan and my purpose to pursue purity. Yet it seems that everyone, everybody on my college campus, everybody in the office just indulges in casual sex. That it, It's not a big deal. Every time they go out on a date, that's how the date ends. But you think to yourself, I'm the only one who's holding out for my husband. I'm the only one who's holding out for my wife. I'm the only one who's saving myself and nobody else is with me. My friend, I want you to know you are not by yourself. Because you plus God always outnumbers the enemy. Middle adult. You sit there and you think to yourself, I I refuse to listen to the political talking heads of my day. I I refuse to to just think that any way is okay. I refuse. I'm going to use all of my resources. I want to use all of my uh, 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 responsibilities to leverage the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you are bold about telling the good story and eager in evangelism. But you say to yourself, I'm the only one. I don't have any other coworkers who will even carry on a gospel conversation. I don't have anybody else who will go with me and make a visit. I don't have anybody else who will stand up for the Lord. It's anyway is okay. My friend, you are not alone because you plus the truth of God always outnumbers the enemy. Senior adult, 
you think to yourself, listen, I, I've had it up to here with the self-absorbed American dream. And now I'm at this stage of my life and I want to leverage everything possible. I want to give away as much money as I can. I want to give away as much time and resources at my disposal because I want to build the kingdom of God and not my own kingdom. And there are some people that think that you give away far too much. There are people that think that you're being far too generous. Your children, your financial advisor, they all look at you and they say, what are you doing? You're crazy. Listen, my friend, you plus God always outnumbers the enemy. Because when you stand up for obedience, when you stand up and declare that the Lord, he is God, you may be outmanned, but you're never outnumbered. Because you plus God always outnumbers the enemy. There's a second takeaway. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the life of the believer. We have only been with Elijah for two weeks. And for two straight weeks, we have found this prophet praying, haven't we? He prayed at Zarephath. He prays on Mount Carmel. He prays in the valley. He prays on the mountaintop. Regardless, it seems that he is a person of prayer because he knows the power of prayer. Regardless of where he is, regardless of what he's experiencing, it would seem that he is praying. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, if God be near a church, that church must be praying. If God be near a brother, that brother must be praying. If God be near a sister, that sister must be praying. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the life of the believer. Elijah stands up and he prays, oh God, answer me. And did God answer? You bet your bottom dollar, he answered. He called down fire from heaven. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to the life of the believer. Here's a third takeaway. Complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. Complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. Some people throughout the ages have not appreciated the way that this story ends. Elijah tells the Israelites, you gather those false prophets, take them to the Kishon Valley, and there execute them by the sword. People have said, why why don't you just try to convert them? Why don't you kill them with kindness? (laughs) Why take them and execute them? I'll tell you why. Because complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said the same thing. You've got to get rid of the wickedness that's around you and within you. So if your right eye calls you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand calls you to sin, lop it off. You say, oh, but Jesus, you're just speaking hyperbole. You don't really mean that. Really? He's saying that you've got to be drastic with your wickedness. Complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. I don't know why we tolerate this in the church when we would not tolerate complacency in everyday life. For I don't want a doctor who's complacent towards cancer. I I don't want a chef that's complacent towards salmonella poisoning. I, I I don't want a teacher who's complacent towards learning. I don't want a politician that's complacent towards obedience to the law. I don't want a minister who's complacent towards loving people. 
We don't tolerate complacency in other areas of life. So why do we tolerate it in the church? Why do we tolerate it in our own lives? If this story teaches us anything, it reminds us that complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. If the Lord is God, then he is holy. And a holy God cannot permit or promote wickedness. So what do you do with wickedness? You've got to stamp it out. Some of us this morning, before we leave here, God is calling us here to this altar because he wants to execute some of that wickedness that's inside of us. Because complacency towards wickedness cannot be tolerated. There's a fourth takeaway. This is the last one. We need God to show up and show off. I want to see this story reenacted in my life and your life. Don't you? I mean, I want fire from heaven. Or at least give me a rumble in the heavens. Give me something, right? I mean, I, I want to see something so spectacular that the only way I can explain it is God showed up and God showed off. I mean, when you came in here today, what did you expect? Oh, well, I expected, you know, we're going to sing some songs and we're going to pray and we're going to hear the preacher and he's going to go on and on for a few minutes. And then after he's done, you know, we're going to offer the invitation and, uh, Somebody might join the church. Somebody may come forward. I don't know. Uh, but then when it's over, he'll probably stand up and he'll do those announcement things and then uh, offer a prayer. Then we'll be gone. We'll be done. My friends, I pray to the Lord every Sunday, please spare us from that. Please, will you show up and show off? I don't know what this looks like. I don't know what this means. But God, I just ask for you to do something. And at the end of the day, the only way we can explain it is God did it. And God sent fire from heaven And God showed up and did a miraculous thing. I don't know about you, but I need God to show up and show off in my life. We need God to show up and show off in our marriages. We need God to show up and show off in our parenting. We need God to show up and show off in our finances. We need God to show up and show off in uh, the marketplace. We need God to show up and show off uh, in our businesses. We need God to show up and show off in our churches. We need God to show up and show off in our culture, in our community, in our country, in our world. We just need God to show up and to show off so that we declare the Lord He is God. The Lord, he is God. You do realize that God does some of his best work on mountains, don't you? It was on Mount Moriah where God spared the son of Abraham. It was on Mount Horeb where God called Moses from a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. It was on Mount Sinai where God brought Moses and etched in stone the Ten Commandments with his divine finger. It is here on Mount Carmel where God showed up and showed off and declared once and for all that he is God. It was on the mountain of transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appeared alongside Jesus and they flanked him, one on the right, one on the left, and they talked about the upcoming exodon, the departure For Jesus is the full embodiment of the law and the prophets. And finally, it's Mount Carmel. I mean, it's Mount Calvary where Jesus is crucified between two thieves. He took your sin and he took my sin and Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. 
God does some of his best work on the mountain. And there at Mount Calvary, it is where Jesus, the God man died in your place and mine. And his dead body was placed into a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, Jesus got up and it changes everything. So that when we see Calvary, we declare as in the words of first Kings chapter 18, the Lord, he is God. So I don't know about you, but I just need a few lightning bolts today. I just need a little bit of fire to fall from heaven. Because that's how God ignites worship. Heavenly Father, we give you the invitation. And Father, we don't know exactly what that looks like. But we just pray that you will transform lives. We pray that you will redeem the lost. We pray that you will just reignite your saints And Father, please help us to be faithful unto you. We give you this invitation. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.